the title of this evening's talk is Investigation or Discrimination of States and the Creative Process. What is it that enables us to move towards being a Buddha? Or as one of my uh, Burmese uh, teachers says, what makes one a true heir of the Buddha? There's a phrase that the Buddha used many times, ehipasika in Pali, and it translates as come and see, ehipasika. This is an invitation to come and see, not to come and believe, but to come and see for ourselves what's true. To come and see in this way requires a great interest, willingness, and courage, which includes um, a growing faith, a growing faith that blossoms directly out of our own experience, an interest, willingness, and courage to look directly, deeply, and honestly into the body, the heart, and the mind with humility and without relying on what others say is true through what we may have heard and through what we may have read. To come and see in this way requires that we don't settle into the inertia of our habitual perceptions of our relationships to, and our identifications with our inner and outer experience. This interest, willingness, and courage are really the qualities that keep practice alive from the very beginning and ongoing through all the years of our practice. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the discerning aspect of mindfulness, the aspect of mindfulness that's fueled by the Buddha's invitation, Ehipasika, which is the second factor of enlightenment, investigation or discrimination of states. The Buddha said that mindfulness is needed in all instances. And he described that from saying, as a seasoning of salt is needed in all sauces, he said. Mindfulness is a refuge for the heart, a refuge for the mind. And the factor through the whole of our practice and through the whole of our life that affords us the greatest protection. Investigation or discrimination of states, both bodily and mental states, is the activity of mindfulness, the discerning aspect of mindfulness. This active aspect of mindfulness is really what clearly illuminates the object.
lighting up all of our sense door and mental experiences right into their core, showing us both their individual characteristics and their universal essence, their ultimate reality. This factor of awakening has the potential to dispel darkness. The darkness of not seeing, the darkness of ignoring how it is. Investigation eliminates bewilderment and confusion. The not seeing, the not knowing of delusion, the not knowing and not seeing in relationship to ignorance. It's kind of like walking into a pitch dark room with a very bright flashlight. When things are brightly lit, what's already present is then clearly seen, is known, and confusion is then dispelled. In our practice, investigation means that we experience things directly without the mediation of concept. So for example, and this can be a metaphor for any internal phenomena or movement in the body or state of mind or for any object that the eye door contacts as we begin to move into seeing drawing. (coughs) A breath is known. And maybe you see and know it at the level of simply knowing in, knowing out, which is still actually based in the world of concept. Investigation without putting on the glasses, so to say. Then you put on the metaphorical glasses and directly know a long or a short or a deep or a shallow breath. You may connect simply and directly with the movement of the breath at the nostrils or maybe in the belly. Experiencing the touch sensation in the space between the nostrils and the upper lip or the rising and falling movement in the belly. Beginning now to move from conceptualizing the breath to direct into direct experience. And then you looked through the microscope with the lowest power lens. The whole in-breath is felt and known from beginning to end. You feel and know the whole out-breath from its beginning to its end. And maybe, much to your surprise, you find that each in-breath and each out-breath are not necessarily the smooth, ongoing experience that you've been used to maybe all your life. And even though it might be quite subtle, you begin to feel it and to know it as clearly happening in tiny segments. In, in, in. Out, out, out. Rather than a smooth flow. As you come closer getting more intimate with the experience of breath, you begin to see it as just simply happening in its own way without you controlling it. The heart 
mind and body are relaxed. And there's much interest in what's occurring. Not thinking about it. Just simply present, interested, and receptive. As you relax more, with interest growing even brighter, the microscope's lens powers up. The idea, the concept of breath falls away. The mind is settled and collected. Potential distractions have little or maybe no attraction. The subtle sensation just below the nostrils or the rising and falling movement in the belly is very clearly felt and known, with maybe the most predominant experience being a soft vibration with each movement of the breath. Who's breathing? Who's moving? Who sees? Who's experiencing and knowing bodily sensation? Who's hearing? Breath isn't what you thought it was. And at least for the moments that you've stopped thinking about it and are just simply, directly, and mindfully present, there's a clear discernment of the experience which includes a deep and a complete trust. A trust that that this is just enough. Nothing else need be done. The mind, the heart, is open, receptive, spacious, and at ease in this direct and simple connection to the experience as the way of things very naturally reveals itself. This is our practice. This is our training. (coughs) Practice itself, which is very akin to the creative process, is a vehicle for peeling away the layers of our habitual conditioned perceptions and reactions. So for the most for most of the rest of our discussion this evening, I'd like to more specifically explore the creative process as practice, with mindfulness and investigation being the root from which stems the beautiful blossoms of wisdom and creative expression in their myriad, myriad manifestations. Creative process as an aspect of our practice is potentially a vehicle for peeling away the layers of our habitual conditioned perceptions and reactions, and a vehicle that has great potential for revealing the interdependent and selfless nature of all physical and mental phenomena. So for instance, whether it be the immediacy and spontaneity of moment-to-moment creative visceral response through the moving body, or via receiving what's seen 
with the I without interposing the self, meaning contacting things directly, letting the hand and the pencil follow what the eye sees without the thought of making a picture or the thought of being creative or be it trusting the process of thought and words arising as though from nowhere, as though from no one, thus creating the conditions for the immediacy and spontaneity of letting writing flow from this empty space. With each and all of these experiences about engaging in the creative process as practice, In light of this, I think it's fair to say that the creative process is about forgetting what we've previously learned. Really, actually, a necessary step in responding uh, more directly and seeing and sensing more precisely. Part of moving, seeing, drawing, and writing is forgetting meaning forgetting what we think we know about the subject, even forgetting what we've been taught, meaning in our case here, what we think we know maybe about drawing or writing or how we should or shouldn't move the body. Forgetting stops the mind from knowing in its habitual conditioned ways. At this point, then, one is confronted with the object itself, and one's usual way of knowing is arrested. The heart-mind is open, receptive, appreciative, able to respond to the inner voice, the tone, the shape, the texture, with a really genuine authority and autonomy. What is it that keeps this open-hearted being in the presence from happening? One artist's response, uh, reply, or response to this question was the fear of losing control. I think that for many people, experiencing, that many people experience not knowing as feeling dumb, feeling stupid. But I have to say for myself that some of the most extraordinary experiences that I've had in which truth was revealed to me all had the quality of bearing witness or just simply being there, just simply being here with tremendous and yet relaxed interest, meaning a very open-hearted connection, connected mindful attention and discernment with humility and, very important, no need to make meaning. In our practice, 
This includes the creative processes practice. Until we can suspend the need for meaning, we really can't experience the direct revelation of insight, the direct revelation of wisdom. Though without a doubt, for each and all of us humans, there is an ancient and subconscious urge for creative life and inventiveness. From our very beginnings, it's not so easy to be unarmed, meaning to be without our habitual ways and self-centered identifications. Fear can sometimes and maybe often leap up in us. And so we train the heart, we train the mind very slowly and with great care to see the nature of our constraints, to see them more and more clearly and to let go. The poet Rilke exhorts us to return to things in themselves. But the way to them can be difficult. Why? Because we're faced with our self, our seemingly set and solid self. It seems that we're, most of us are quite overtrained regarding ourselves. We're usually the center of our attention and consequently it can be quite difficult to really truly come and see. Ehipasika. As the Buddha invites us beyond this notion of the self. Of a self. A so-called self. Engaging in the creative process with joyful interest, which is one of the factors of enlightenment, by the way, engaging in the creative process with joyful interest and open-hearted mindfulness can really be a wonderful vehicle towards freeing up honesty, authenticity, and the essence energy of creative, of creativity all of which help to create the conditions that allow the direct revelation of insight into the way of things. I've learned a lot from children in this area, my own children and uh, a teaching. I taught uh, elementary school at an alternative school for uh, uh, over eight years, quite a number of years ago. In my early 30s, I taught art at this alternative school for all these years. The five to eight-year-olds loved painting. So sometimes I'd ask them to paint in relationship to a particular theme. But often it was just free expression painting. And one morning as I was walking around looking, looking at and commenting on paintings that were in process, and uh, those that were already finished, one little boy uh, came up to me and he said, 
you always like all of our paintings. <laughs> and then he said, how come? Well, this little boy really noticed something, and he really asked the right question. As some of you probably know, children uh, have a way of saying things that can really stop us in our tracks. So I said, yes, when he said, you like all our paintings, I said, yes, I do. And then I thought, how come? (laughs) Well, this was many years ago. When I'm in my 30s, I'm now almost 80, so a long time ago. But So I don't remember exactly uh, what I said to him, but something about honesty and uh, expressing from the inside and how could I not feel anything but appreciation. I could ask questions and occasionally make suggestions, but there really wasn't anything to dislike or to feel critical about because what each person, each child painted was their truly honest expression in that moment. Well, this little fellow seemed to understand. He quite vigorously shook his head up and down and he kind of beamed at me. As adults, can we be so unarmed in our creative expression? while at the same time being mindful and seeing clearly, receptive to the right answers that show up in our show up to our perennial questions regarding the way towards being really, truly happy and at ease in this life. Can we be so unarmed? so as to allow the life force within us to catalyze into creative life with a purity and intensity devoid of personal pride, devoid of self-judgment. No conceit of self. And simply be what we are by birthright. One of the creative endeavors that has been part of my life off and on over many years since I was in my early 20s is the making of portrait sculpture with a particular person uh, being the live model for each piece of work. And this work has really been a deep and powerful direct uh, practice and a metaphor of practice for me particularly in relationship to the cultivation of mindfulness, investigation, and discernment, effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and wisdom, which are the seven factors of enlightenment. So I'd like to just share a little bit of this, as I think it might be a a useful illustration in the context of this particular retreat and particularly as we begin to enter into the seeing-drawing portion of our practice. In order to create a likeness of a person in clay, a tremendous depth of mindful investigation has to take place. A head, its shape, the neck and shoulders, the face, 
how to see it as a whole and then know it, both in its wholeness and in its particulars, so that the seeing and knowing can be transferred through the eyes, mind, heart, and body, out through the hands and fingers into the clay. A daunting and actually impossible task if one doesn't begin to see what one is looking at simply as hundreds or actually thousands of relationships that actually change with each angle of seeing. And so the subject's head and face begin to break down into a series of relational forms. Forms that exist only in relationship to each other. Forms that exist only in spatial relationship to each other. There's no head, no face, no person as we ordinarily know it. There are just a series of relationships to be known. It's a very, very intimate process. Much more so than if I just keep looking at the whole form. The completely unique characteristics of the face in front of me become very clearly and deeply known, but not as any fixed or separate entity. And the universals of all human faces become known quite intimately. At the same time, the concepts of solidity, fixedness, and separateness lose their habitual potency and actually quite thoroughly fall away at times. What is this nose? This eye? This chin? Any nose, any eye, any chin. Seeing and knowing through the microscope of an open-hearted and deeply connected mindful investigation from revolving angles, moment after moment after moment, seeing and knowing the space between the inside corner of an eye in relationship to the downward slope of the eye's lower edge, in relationship to the bulging curvature of the eyeball as it rounds out to touch the outer edge and corner of the skin around the eye, and on, and on, and on. With all of this seeing and knowing coming out of my fingers, into the clay, forming the clay, little by little by little. And as though magically, a face emerges out of the clay, a face that in fact bears the likeness and projects some of the quality of the liveliness of this human being sitting in front of me. It's not so easy to render this creative process into words. So 
I hope that uh, it's been at least somewhat communicated and at least somewhat helpful for you. And as I've already mentioned in past talks, insight practice is itself an art and in many ways very close to the creative process. As I'm sure uh, some of you are aware of. And as we will continue to discover as this retreat continues to unfold. During one period of time, when I was deeply immersed in the sculpture work, I went to see a film at a movie theater. And I was quite struck that evening by all of the faces of all of the people in the theater lobby. Each one having all the same equipment, so to say. Noses, eyes, mouths, cheeks, chins, foreheads. And yet each person's face being totally unique just based on the tiny nuances of how all the parts were interrelated. My awareness that evening in the movie theater lobby, jumping back and forth, back and forth, seeing the diversity in the one and the one in the diversity. That evening, for a little while, they weren't separate. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, the flower ornament sutra, which is revered as a treasure of sensual imagery and considered to be the highest teaching of the Buddha in Chinese Mahayana Buddhism. There's a short section that elaborates on my very brief and very small experience. And this is what comes from the Avatamsaka Sutra. The Bodhisattva sees the interdependent nature of all things, sees in one dharma all dharmas, sees in all dharmas the one dharma, sees the multiplicity in the one, and the one in the multiplicity, sees the one in the immeasurable, and the immeasurable in the one, and in this case the immeasurable meaning the indescribable, the flow, the process of life as it unfolds. Birth and existence of all dharmas is of a changing nature, and this, and thus unreal, and cannot touch the enlightened ones. The nature of things quite naturally reveals itself. It's not hidden. We enter into the mystery through the intimacy of our practice, rather than staying at a distance, rather than staying separate from it. And some words uh, from the Japanese philosopher and teacher of the way of tea, Yanagi, that speaks of this in a very lucid and very succinct way. Yanagi said, they saw. Before all else, they saw. They were able to see. Ancient mysteries flew from this wellspring of seeing. In very precise and 
sometimes minute ways, or at times through a much more spacious and less precise mode of mindfulness and investigation. We come to know the not-self, the not-separate, the non-dual nature of things. Anything. All things. Ordinary things. For a moment we touch into the absolute truth of the relative world. And it makes a difference in how we live our life. Because on a deeply intuitive level, we've contacted the cause of suffering and the way of its end. Mindfulness, investigation, and discernment are our guides through what at times may feel like an impenetrable forest of experience. As we each know, each and all of us know, life can be quite challenging and quite difficult at times. Practice can be quite challenging and quite difficult at times. It's not new news to any of you, I know that. (laughs) Along the way, we find that it takes a very deep willingness and a certain courage to traverse this path of awakening. People sometimes have described their experience at particular points along the path as feeling as though they're a spiritual warrior. I think that many of us, much of the time, view experience and view our life as a string of blessings and a string of curses. Through our practice, our life as our practice, we learn to not get caught up in the attachment to blessings or get caught up in the aversion to curses. With mindful presence and clear discernment as the ground of our life, we learn to view and to relate to life as a continual opportunity, a continual opportunity to deepen our practice and our understanding, a continual opportunity for learning, with all of it affording us the amazing opportunity of awakening. And I think for many of us, if we're really, truly candid, we may occasionally feel like a spiritual warrior in the process. Some years ago, uh, it became clear that I needed to have an old uh, filling removed out of one of my teeth uh, and a crown put on this same molar. So maybe a curse from one point of view. And I am severely, very severely allergic to an array of local anesthetics. No Novocaine or any of the other local anesthetics uh, that are used for dental work are for me. I cannot have those. So maybe another curse from a particular point of view. But I do have a very deep and strong practice, which is definitely a great blessing. The appointment with the dentist that day was really quite a challenge. The challenge of continually relaxing and continually staying open to the experience of the moment, 
focusing, focusing and connecting with all that was going on in my mouth and noticing the constant change of each sensation. Sometimes a very strong, intense sensation and sometimes a more mild sensation. Being present from its beginning right through to its end. As soon as I would lose my concentration, mindfulness and the clarity of discernment, ignorance immediately would move in. What was merely being experienced as varying degrees of unpleasant quickly became strong dislike. And the moment then verged on becoming an unbearable moment. There was a moment during that particular time at the dentist when I completely lost the concentrated mindful connection to what was occurring. And my body really jerked strongly in reaction to a a particular sensation, which surprised the dentist (laughs) and was really a wake-up bell for me. And it was in moments a great surprise to learn how easy it was actually to be there as long as I was clearly and purely present just with what was happening. Not thinking about it, one iota, just present with what was happening. Time lost its ordinary parameters, just like it sometimes does in intensive retreat practice. I wasn't waiting for the end of anything. And in fact, there were a couple of surprising moments of feeling, wow, I could just stay here forever and it would be okay. (laughs) That really surprised me when that popped up. (laughs) So what is a curse? What is a blessing? As our practice takes deeper and deeper root, its blessings begin to permeate all the corners of our life. Mindfulness and investigation of states grounded in interest and an open-hearted, non-judgmental receptivity is our guide through what at times may feel like an impenetrable forest of experience. We can't expect or depend on something outside of our own mind and heart or someone else to do it for us. This invitation, ehipasika, come and see. When we connect and see clearly, the next step is right in front of us. It's just one step at a time. One autumn morning, um, a, a number of years ago now, I uh, went for a day-long hike with a friend up in the mountains here in the Taos Ski Valley. And my hiking buddy uh, is a long-time Dhamma practitioner, and so we like to hike in silence. And we usually walk alone, though not far uh, apart on the trail uh, from each other. And often we speak together only during our rest breaks and during lunchtime. Hiking days like this for me and for my friend, are some of our most treasured uh, non-retreat practice times. 
there's a very deep and connected relationship through all of the sense doors to the surrounding world and to our bodily sensations and movement and to the feelings and the various states that come and go in the mind and the heart as we take our time making our way up the trail. And this particular day, as we were wending our way through this particular Rocky Mountain landscape, two young people came up behind us, and they were moving very fast. Actually, they were pretty much running up the mountain. And each of them uh, were holding a small yellow plastic object in their hand, which they uh, were quite intently holding up and out in front of them as they were running up the trail. So... Uh, We exchanged very cursory hellos, and I asked them what the yellow plastic object was, and I was told it was a GPS, as if I would, of course, know what that is. (laughs) They were in such a huge hurry uh, that there was really no opportunity to ask them, what is a GPS? And this was enough years ago that it was before GPSs were uh, so widely used. Well, my friend, my hiking buddy, Uh, knew a little bit about it and said that it's an instrument that tells you where you are. (laughs) And as soon as she said this, we both looked at each other with a kind of amazement and we began to laugh. And we couldn't stop laughing for quite a while. That particular day where my friend and I were along the trail was being connected with and known over and over and over again in so many ways and on so many levels as we were slowly making our way up the mountain. The intermediary of a global positioning system seemed really quite absurd at that point and in that setting. A poem by David Wagoner called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen, it answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, Here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree, a bush, does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So again, ehipasika, come and see. Come and see for yourself. The Buddha, with his great clarity and compassion, spoke about what he called the nutriment for the arising, development, fulfillment, and perfection of this enlightenment factor of investigation of states. He said that we must give a wise and careful attention to both beneficial and un-
beneficial states. Beneficial states such as loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, as well as to the so-called hindrances, sleepiness, restlessness, the wanting mind, the aversive mind, the doubting mind. He said it's essential that we give a wise and careful attention to the states of suffering, to the cause of suffering itself, and to the end of suffering. Again and again, the Buddha directs us towards seeing and knowing the particular individual essences of both beneficial or wholesome and unbeneficial or unwholesome states. He again and again also directs us towards seeing and knowing the three universal characteristics of all states of body, all states of mind. The essential unsatisfactoriness, the ephemerality, the changing nature, impermanence, anicca, and the selfless nature of all mental and bodily experiences. This is really the primary nutriment for the arising, development, fulfillment, and perfection of these factors of investigation and clear comprehension, with these factors being primarily what counters delusion, what counters ignorance. And the Buddha also tells us we should ask appropriate questions, and that it's helpful to reflect on the real possibility of deep understanding. We're encouraged also to associate with people who have understanding. And it's suggested that we don't spend too much time with those who don't have understanding. The Buddha spoke in a very beautiful way about the internal purification of the heart and mind as being, and these are his words, like the light of a lamp's flame that arises with a clean lamp bowl, wick, and oil as its support. And that bodily and mental formations become evident and clear to one who tries to comprehend them with a purified base. A mind, a heart that is cleansed through moral, the moral integrity of sila and the purification of heart and mind that the development of concentration, the development of samatha or samadhi, facilitates. Balancing our faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and understanding will nurture investigation. And at some point, we may find that we would actually like to make a resolve to incline the mind, incline the heart towards these first two factors of awakening, the factors of mindfulness and investigation. Clear discrimination of bodily and mental states is a requisite for liberation, a requisite for the arising of wisdom. And so in this light, the particular factor of investigation is spoken of as the wisdom factor. There's a difference between the person 
with a mind unconsciously steeped in me, mine, and I, and one who lives, sees, senses, feels, and knows through a mind steeped in mindful awareness and investigation of states of body and mind. The difference is that the narrowness of the mind steeped in me, mine, and I, in that there's a very strong and sticky identification with all of the hopes and all of the fears that arise, which is actually a very painful place to live one's life from. When the mind, the heart, is steeped in the factors of mindfulness and investigation, one isn't very often caught or thrown off or ruffled or confused by inner and outer events. We see, we sense, we feel what is. We know it beyond the seeming appearances. We aren't caught as nearly as often by the hopes and fears in relationship to the moment's experiences. They come and we let them go, as they naturally do anyways. We can't keep any of it. Our practice affords us the great potential gift of not clinging, not being identified with and attached to experience all of the time. What is, is just what is. Moment to moment, more and more often. Mindfulness, direct investigation, and discrimination of experience is what brings the deepest understanding. Otherwise, our understanding is based only on the intellect. It's really merely cerebral understanding, a kind of imaginary understanding. And as many of you know, at least some of the time, it's impossible to think our way out of tension, stress, and confusion. It's impossible. It's impossible to think our way out of suffering. We can't think our way out of it. And it's impossible to think our way into really, truly letting go. We can't think our way to liberation. Awakening is beyond or beneath the intellect. It's beyond or beneath concept. So how can we possibly use concept to get us there? When insight is born, when understanding is born, it's deep and integrated and simple. It's cellular, as someone once described their experience to me. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj tells us the mind, the thinking mind, is interested in what happens, while mindful awareness is interested in the mind, while mindful awareness is interested in the heart, the mind. And then he goes on to say, the child is after the toy, but the mother watches the child, not the toy. 
with investigation, we move out of the dark and come into the light, the light of wisdom. In reference to his own enlightenment, the Buddha said, the eye is born, knowledge was born, wisdom was born, understanding was born, light was born. As you sit, walk, eat, do your yogi job, and learn to simply and easily let the body move. As you spend time learning to really, truly see, which is what drawing flows from, and as you spend time open-heartedly, open-mindedly writing, as you make your way through this retreat, rather than being caught up in old conditioned and sometimes unskillful habits, mindfulness, investigation, and clear discernment provide you the best medicine for the great gift of engagement at its very best. Creative expression that occurs directly and purely from our personal experience is an expression of our humanness expression of our perceptions of reality, beautiful or otherwise, spontaneous expression of seeing and feeling, or possibly a reflection of insight, a reflection of understanding. It is creative expression, creative work that in some way honestly conveys one's search for freedom, without having to come to a conclusion or express any particular answer. All of this is part of the path towards reaching for understanding the essence of our beingness, reaching the truth of ourself. Even in the process of... And even if the process of creative expression within it we may not really be aware, may not be precisely conscious of the possibilities that are developing and blossoming. As we explore various creative modalities through this retreat, and as our life as a whole, with honesty, humility, and an interested enthusiasm, we can really be sure, absolutely sure, that this is an important and essential aspect of the path towards reaching and understanding the truth of ourselves, our not-self nature, and the not-self nature of all things. As we practice and learn, we find that our life is unfolding and blossoming more and more from the place of selflessness, from the place of what I like to call a healthy emptiness. With the thread of self having been pulled out, we find that we experience creative expression flowing more spontaneously and more freely in myriad ways throughout our life. As awakening beings, we're moving towards our inheritance from the Buddha by simply becoming a real human being. 
a very beautiful expression that Sayadaw Upandita used to use often for one who is awake, a real human being. A wise, open-hearted, and caring human being with the innate capacity for creativity and inventiveness flowing freely. And this is really the greatest gift that we can offer the world. I'd like to uh, close the talk with a very poetic teaching from the Buddha that I think I read mm, the second night of the retreat, but I'd like to offer it again. This is uh, called A Single Excellent Night, you might remember, and it's from the Majjhima Nikaya. Let me not revive the past, or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not yet been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly by day, by night. It is in her, it is in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. And let's sit quietly for just a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.